from Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the climate warms, insects like mosquitoes can expand their range, bringing new, exotic, and unwelcome threats like the Zika virus. You know, we know that temperature, for instance, is a very key driver for the ability of the mosquito to replicate or the ability of the mosquito to survive long enough to transmit the virus that it happens to be carrying. So I think climate change is probably an important factor here. There's no easy way to fight this disease and potentially disastrous birth defects. Also, as the U.S. turns to cleaner fuels, coal use slumps, and that means far less cash to clean up old mine waste. We were a leader in mining for a very long time, fueled a couple world wars and the Industrial Revolution. So unfortunately, we're left with many problems from that. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The changing climate and growth of international travel is making it easier for infectious diseases carried by insects to find new victims. We've seen dengue fever, the West Nile virus, and the hantavirus spread, and now it seems we need to brace for the mosquito-borne Zika virus, which is linked to a devastating birth defect. At least 18 cases have been reported in the United States, mostly among travelers, although there are locally transmitted cases in Puerto Rico. The Centers for Disease Control advise pregnant women to avoid the 24 countries where Zika is widespread. For more information and advice, we reached out to Dr. Cameron Kahn at the University of Toronto, who recently published a paper on Zika in The Lancet. Welcome to Living on Earth, Dr. Kahn. Thank you. It's great to be here. Dr. Kahn, Zika's been around humans for more than 50 years. So why is it suddenly capturing our attention? Well, you're right. Zika virus was first identified in Uganda in 1947. It's actually named after the Zika forest there. And it's been just causing sporadic cases over the last 50 years or so. In 2007, it found its way into the island of Yap in Micronesia, caused a bit of an epidemic there. And it's been island hopping to French Polynesia, to Easter Island, and, and then now, more recently, into Brazil. We're hearing about it because it's found a really hospitable environment in Brazil. 200 million people, essentially with no immunity to this virus, the mosquito that is efficient at transmitting it, the Aedes aegypti mosquito, in a suitable climate. So it's all the makings of, uh, of an epidemic. Now, how long and why have you studied the Zika virus? I first became aware of Zika in May of 2015 when it first showed up in Brazil and started to work with some of our colleagues in Oxford that actually spend a lot of time studying the 80s mosquito and its ability to transmit viruses and our work here in Toronto on understanding how people move and travel around the world. And we essentially put our skill sets together to try and anticipate and model how this disease would spread across the region. Tell me specifically about what you published in The Lancet. How might the Zika virus spread outside of South America? We first took a look at how people are traveling out of Brazil. Mm -hmm. And this is important because if an individual is bitten by a mosquito that carries a Zika virus, they can then board a plane and go to another part of the world that has the 80s mosquito that can transmit the virus and infect that mosquito if the mosquito bites them that mosquito can then propagate the infection and take it on to others. So what we did was we looked at the movements of travelers out of Brazil because we knew that this virus was widespread in the region. And we coupled that with information on where 80s mosquitoes are across the Americas 
and where the climate is suitable for it to be transmitted to humans. The U.S. has a, a large footprint in terms of travelers around the globe. So we're very likely to see and are already seeing travelers who are infected with Zika virus returning to the United States. That's very different than individuals who haven't left the United States who become infected by mosquitoes in the U.S. Now, our research suggested that some areas of Florida, the Gulf Coast, parts of southern Texas, the environment there is suitable and the mosquito is present for possible local transmission of Zika virus. I don't anticipate in the U.S. that there would be the types of explosive epidemics we're seeing in other parts of Latin America. Climate isn't the only factor, but the conditions are there and conducive to that. Now, the public is really engaged with this because of well, it sounds like a horror story that uh, you get this disease, a woman gets this disease during pregnancy, her baby could be born with, with a smaller brain, microcephaly. So what's the relationship between Zika and uh, this rise in microcephaly? We know with other viruses, rubella is one that was known to also cause microcephaly and congenital defects in newborns. Rubella is something that people often call German measles, right? Correct. So rubella is a condition which individuals can pass this virus on to their unborn child, which can cause microcephaly and other types of birth defects. At this point in time, there's growing evidence to suggest that Zika virus is associated with microcephaly. The first bit of evidence really came from this epidemiological link, meaning that you know, we were seeing a dramatic rise in microcephaly cases in parts of Brazil, especially in the Northeast, where Zika virus was most active, going from about 150 cases a year to well over 3,500 cases. Mm -hmm. I think the most compelling evidence has been that Zika virus has been identified in the brains of newborns who died shortly after birth and had microcephaly, as well as in the placentas of some women who miscarried and had stillborns with microcephaly. We still don't know for certain whether Zika is the primary cause, a contributing factor, and, and this is why there's you know, ongoing investigation to better delineate what the risk is. What do you think of the advice to people in this, these regions to not get pregnant at this point until this is figured out? I think it's a sign just of the desperation in the situation. I mean, you know, when in history have we heard of a policy of don't get pregnant? But I think it's also important to keep in mind that there's no vaccine on the immediate horizon. There's no effective antiviral treatment. And this is a day-biting mosquito predominantly. So you can just imagine individuals living in a very warm tropical climate, and really their only measure to prevent mosquito bites would be to cover up, to be applying mosquito repellent very frequently. And we know that that's not even 100% effective. What might work to combat the spread of this disease or the mosquitoes that carry it? Um, controlling the mosquito populations, eliminating some of the breeding sites. But there have been some more novel interventions proposed. Mm -hmm. Some organizations are trying to engineer mosquitoes that could be released into the wild. And if they mate, they could result in offspring that are not viable. Essentially, the mosquito populations would start to diminish. There is another approach that's been used with dengue, which is a related virus, where the mosquito is infected with a bacterium called Wolbachia. And in that instance, this bacterium seems to actually disrupt the ability for the mosquito to transmit dengue virus to humans. These are in consideration. It is important to keep in mind they're not going to address the problem in a span of weeks or months, for instance. To what extent is this outbreak related in our disrupting climate, that things are getting warmer and places where mosquitoes can flourish are expanding, are moving? 
Well, if we look at the 80s mosquitoes, over the last 50 years or so, we've seen a very dramatic expansion of their geographic range around the world. Now, on one hand, that expansion is probably related just to globalization, meaning travel and trade and the movements of these mosquitoes to different parts of the world. But I think climate change is probably an important factor here as well. You know, we know that temperature, for instance, is a very key driver for the ability of the mosquito to replicate, for the ability of the mosquito to survive long enough to transmit the virus that it happens to be carrying. So I think climate change is probably an important factor here. Dr. Cameron Kahn is an infectious disease physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and teaches at the University of Toronto Medical School and School for Public Health. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today, doctor. My pleasure. I'm back out on the campaign trail in snowy New Hampshire, chasing presidential candidates as they discuss or don't discuss the environment. On a cold night in Rochester, I stopped by a campaign rally for Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz. It was an older and mostly conservative crowd with former New Hampshire House Speaker Bill O'Brien and former U.S. Senator Bob Smith on the platform. But though Senator Cruz talked about his religious beliefs, he said nothing about the environment or climate change, and no one took the microphone to ask about them. So as the rally broke up, I waded into the crowd to ask myself. What does your faith tell you about how we should care for creation? Uh, look, we, of course we have to be good stewards of the environment. We have to care about clean water and clean air. I think that is very, very important. What unfortunately has been the case in this administration is that many people in the EPA are not focused on clean air and clean water, but instead have behaved like zealots, just shutting down human development. And I think that's the wrong approach to take. We need a common sense approach. Look, when it comes to clean air and clean water, what happened in Flint, Michigan, for example, is an absolute disaster, and it's a failure of government at every level. That's what we need to be doing, is protecting the water supply so that people aren't be po being poisoned. We shouldn't be using regulations to shut down jobs and economic growth for the country. So global warming. I, I think it, it needs to follow the science and the data. And the science is wrong. Um, I chaired a hearing a couple of months ago. I'm the chairman of the, chairman of the Science and Space Subcommittee of the Senate Commerce Committee on the science behind global warming. We brought in expert scientists. The data do not back up the theories that the politicians are pushing. And, and in particular, the satellite data demonstrate for the last 18 years, there has been no significant warming measured whatsoever. The computer models say it should be warming like crazy. The satellites that are actually in the atmosphere measuring the temperature show that it's not happening. And so I don't think we should follow political theories when they're contradicted by the science. By the way, scientists at NASA now say observational errors in the oceans made it first appear there had been little warming over the last 18 years. But now those satellite data biases have been corrected, and there is no doubt the Earth is getting hotter. A few days later across town at Rochester City Hall and Opera House, New Hampshire's Democratic U.S. Senator Jean Shaheen introduced Hillary Clinton. There were plenty of women in an older and decidedly more liberal crowd, and they cheered the secretary's ideas for rebuilding the economy. There are so many jobs that not only could we create here with the proper incentives in our tax code, we could actually bring those jobs back from overseas by giving businesses more reason to invest right here in America. And one of the biggest opportunities for job creation is combating climate change. Now, that's not only something we have to do for our own sake, and it's something I've been working on for years because I know it's serious. 
I love it when the Republicans, as they often do, are asked about climate change, and you know what they say. They say, well, I don't know, I'm not a scientist. And my response to that is go talk to a scientist and actually listen to the scientist and understand what we are up against. But what they don't seem to get either is that this is a great job opportunity. There are so many jobs in clean, renewable energy to be built in this country. They can't be exported. They have to be done right here. If you're putting up wind turbines, if you're putting up solar arrays of photovoltaics, if you're working on geothermal, if you're committed to biofuels, advanced biofuels, which are now being tested, as Gene knows, for use in our Navy ships and our Air Force planes, that's American ingenuity, our creativity, our technology at work right here. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders put the climate front and center at Southern New Hampshire University in Manchester, energizing his mostly young Democratic primary supporters. Fellow Vermonter and 350.org co-founder Bill McKibben introduced him, saying, it's vital to take on climate change now. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, announced that 2015 had indeed been the warmest year on record, and not by a little, by a lot. We're beginning to break apart this planet. But what Bill understands, and what this campaign understands, he understands that if we're going to deal with the crisis, the enormous crisis of climate change, it's not going to be a handful of environmentalists just publishing important papers. That's important. We need a grassroots movement all over this country and all over the world. And I was so pleased a year, year and a half ago to be in New York City. When was that, Bill? September 2014. September 2014, we had what, 400,000 people? 400,000 people marching and say, Congress and the world. We have a huge crisis, and it has to be addressed. And I was particularly pleased to see so many young people and people of color from all over our country, in fact, all over the world, saying that this is an issue that we have to deal with and have to deal with boldly. And I often think, as the father of four and as the grandfather of seven beautiful, beautiful grandchildren, that they will look back on this time, they and the children all over the world. And I want you to think about this. Think about 50 years from now when more droughts and more floods and more extreme weather disturbances and more acidification of the oceans and the unbelievable impact that has on our lives. More sea level, rising sea level. More conflict as people fight for limited natural resources. And 50 years from now, they're going to look back on us and say, the scientists told you what would happen. Why didn't you do what you had to do? The crowd loves the urgency, but the question now is, what will voters do? And it's unclear how much the upcoming primary and general elections will turn on the issue of climate change and our responsibility to act to avert its dangers.
Working with local residents, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, has developed a 15-point plan of recovery for Flint, Michigan, beleaguered by an epic water crisis related to lead contamination. A top concern is the return of local control of government for this city of more than 100,000, which has a black majority population and many getting by on low incomes. The lead poisoning of the citizens of Flint and the long delays in addressing it make for a classic case of environmental racism, says Professor Robert Bullard, a noted author and expert on environmental justice. The Flint water case is the latest poster child for environmental justice. You have the coming together of a perfect storm. You have a low-income community or city, over 40% that's below poverty. You have a majority black city. You have a city that's already under stress economically, whose democratic process has been removed from the local residents. And you have decisions made by other people who don't live in Flint about their water. And water is life. What happened to Flint that residents there lost the ability, the legal ability to govern themselves? And what relation to race do you think that might have? Well, you know, if you look at across the state, the cities that are under state control or in receivership, most of them are majority uh, people of color. And I think anytime you have the power of duly elected officials of a municipality stripped and you have an overseer-type government, a disaster manager, so to speak, you may get decisions which may be totally different than if people who voted and lived in the city and worked in the city and were concerned about the health of residents. And I think that process of having someone to decide your own fate, that's the heart of the environmental justice movement. You know, for too many cases, from Flint to Detroit and Cleveland and Houston and L.A., you start naming the cities. Oftentimes, things are placed in communities of color, in low-income communities, and residents didn't decide it. They didn't have their a political process of voting to determine what goes in and how much comes out. And that's the justice and the equity issue that I think the Flint case is bringing to light. Now, apparently it took more than a year and a half, or on the scale of a year and a half, for attention to be properly paid to the, uh, the disaster, the lead poisoning disaster in Flint. Why did it take so long, do you think? Well, again, uh, the Flint case fits the example of what's happening on environmental justice across the board. Environmental problems of pollution and environmental degradation or response to disasters and health threats, they often take longer to be acknowledged. It takes longer for the response. It takes longer for the recovery in communities of color and low-income communities. So it didn't surprise me that it took so long for this to come to light because many of these environmental justice problems and challenges that impact low-income and communities of color, they're invisible. They're invisible to the state government. They're invisible to the federal government, to county officials. Not that community residents don't know about them and have not been complaining about them, but they are invisible when it comes to the response. This is environmental racism. What do you think motivates environmental racism in this and other cases? Well, I think the fact that environmental racism exists because in the real world, there are some communities that are not considered equal and valued the same as others. We have young people today talking about Black Lives Matter, and I think that whole concept grows out of the fact that black communities and communities of color have not mattered for so long when it comes to giving equal protection. 
providing civil rights and human rights. And so the this whole notion of environmental racism, it's real. It's so real that even having the facts, having the documentation, having the information has never been enough to provide equal protection for people of color and poor people. Why is that? Well, because our society is a long way from being race neutral. Racism permeates every institution in our society. It permeates voting. It permeates uh, housing, education, employment. So we should not be surprised that racism also permeates the way that environmental decisions are made. America has a president of recent African descent, and yet the Environmental Protection Agency, the Region 5 that had Flint in its portfolio, dragged its feet, indeed obstructed the work of a low-level worker who was trying to deal with the situation, fitting into this pattern of environmental racism. We have a black president. Why do we still have environmental racism in this country? Well, you have to understand that the way the EPA operates is that you have the federal EPA headquartered in Washington, D.C., and you have 10 regions. And the regions uh, operate almost as autonomous little EPAs. Regional EPAs work very closely with the state uh, departments of environmental quality. And too often that relationship, that cozy relationship, gets in the way of protecting the most vulnerable communities. And so EPA regional officers will oftentimes communicate information with the state agencies and leave the impacted community out of the loop. And so even when you get complaints from Flint residents to, you know, the state officials that go up to the EPA, if that's not acted upon, you have to question whether or not those individuals should be in those offices with the power and authority to control what happens in communities. Um, compare the national response to the natural gas leak, the massive natural gas leak in Porter Ranch, California, just outside of, of Los Angeles. Compare that response to what happened in Flint. Well, I think the, the fact that we're talking about two different scenarios, we're talking about two examples. And so when you talk about, you know, the nature in which state officials and regional EPA officials have responded to the actions that were taken in Flint, Michigan, in a defensive way. Whereas in California, I think there have been response and the actions that have been taken. You don't see the kind of pushback. You don't see the, the level of pushback. I think what this shows is that race and class still matter in terms of, of how the government response will be pushed forward. I'll give an example of, I saw this up close and personal, with how the waste that was cleaned up, the coal ash was cleaned up after the spill in eastern Tennessee. All levels of government got behind the state of Tennessee to clean up that waste from that coal plant in eastern Tennessee in Roan County, which was predominantly white. But when the decision was made where to send this waste and where to dispose of it, the people in Tennessee said, no, we don't want this stuff disposed in our state or in our county. And decision makers at the state, TVA in Region 4, EPA in Atlanta decided, okay, the best place to put it is to ship it 300 miles south to Perry County, Alabama, to Uniontown, a predominantly black county and a predominantly black city that is very poor in Alabama, send it to the Alabama Black Belt. So if it's so poisoned for eastern Tennessee, mostly white, very white, why is it not the same consideration given to a poor black area? That's the kind of blatant decision-making at the federal, state, and local level that really don't consider equity and outcomes that 
on their face may appear to be race neutral, but the outcomes is that you're taking waste from white areas and shipping it to the black areas, and we say that is environmental racism. What about the question of climate change? To what extent is that an environmental justice issue? Climate change is probably the number one environmental justice issue of our time. It is the global environmental justice issue. The communities that have contributed least to global warming and climate change will feel the impacts first, worst, and longest. And I think the environmental justice movement and the climate justice movement speak to this issue, not just in terms of parts per million and CO2 and greenhouse gases, but also talk about the equity impacts of climate change and talk about the solutions and that real solutions uh, bring to the table those communities that have historically been left out of the environmental decision making. Our communities, uh, frontline communities, have to be in the room, have to be at the table and have to be part of any solution going forward as it relates to uh, climate action plans. Now, uh, you brought some students from the historically black colleges and universities to Paris for the climate summit. What was that process like? Well, because the climate change movement historically has not represented all of the diversity of our country, a group of us decided, Dr. Beverly Wright at uh, Dillard University and myself, we decided to come together and form the Historically Black College and University Consortium on Climate Change. And we decided that we will raise the money and bring our young emerging leaders at our HBCUs to Paris for the COP21. We were able to bring 50 students from 15 universities from Texas all the way across the Gulf Coast and South Atlantic and as far north as Pennsylvania. We brought the students and some faculty mentors who are working on climate and working on all kinds of STEM research and policy. We said that these young people, African-American students, needed to see how policies are being made. And what was decided in December in Paris in uh, 2015 will impact these young people going forward. And so they need to be in Paris to show that African-Americans are concerned about climate change and we are in solidarity with other people around the world and showing that the issues that impact people of color and people in the developing world, we have those same issues in our own country as it relates to climate justice. Bob, I think it was back in 1990, you wrote the book Dumping in Dixie, Race, Class, and Environmental Quality. What's changed since then and what gives you hope for more change? Well, when I wrote uh, Dumping in Dixie in 1990, Dumping in Dixie was the only book. It was the environmental justice uh, Bible at the time. Today, if you Google or if you look on uh, the internet and search for environmental justice books, there's hundreds of books on the topic. There are lots of researchers out there doing environmental justice scholarship. I see more and more courses and programs at colleges and universities integrating these concepts of justice into the curricula across the board. And if you look at this whole notion of dumping in Dixie and environmental justice, we confine that book to the southern United States. But today, environmental justice covers not just the United States, but environmental justice now is a global movement and the issues and the framing has spread across the globe. To me, that's the maturation of our movement. Robert Bullard is dean of the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leyland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Bob. My pleasure. 
Environmental injustice is not limited to communities of color. Consider the temporary moratorium the Obama administration has imposed on coal leases on federal lands. This comes on the heels of the nation's second biggest coal company, Arch Coal, seeking bankruptcy protection due to declining demand at U.S. power plants and increasing concern about emissions. Among the victims of coal's decline is the effort to clean up old, abandoned mines. That's because the government pays to reclaim old mines by exacting a fee on new mines. And as the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports, now there's less money to clean up the legacy of coal mining in Pennsylvania, where poverty rates are high. About an hour south of Pittsburgh, Eric Cavazza scrambles up a steep hillside of loose rocks and pebbles. Get up here. There is a wooded hollow over this way. Cavazza is head of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection's Abandoned Mine Program. He's leading me up a coal refuse pile. It's basically a hill made out of coal mine tailings. There used to be a mine here in the small village of Fredericktown. This pile is all that's left of it. And this is all the waste material which was trammed back up on the hill. They had a big conveyor that brought it back up and just dumped it. The pile literally backs up onto people's houses here. Hardly any trees will grow on it. It's unstable, and it's a nuisance for the town below it. The material erodes off here. It erodes into the river. It erodes into small streams. It blocks uh, the storm sewer system in the towns. The pile was created before modern environmental regulations required mines to clean up their mess. Decades ago, companies just left piles like these behind when a mine stopped making money. Pennsylvania has been left with hundreds of these sites, the most of any state in the country. We were a leader in mining for, for a very long time. Fueled a couple world wars and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so, unfortunately, we're left with many problems from that. Cavazza would like to clean up this pile, but his funding source keeps shrinking. I definitely think had we continued to get the grants the, the size we were getting about three or four years ago, this project would be done probably within the next couple of years. But uh, we're at the reality now where these really large dollar value projects we're probably only going to be able to tackle maybe one per year. So, and there's a lot of them. What's happening to that money? Lots of things, including the budget sequester implemented by Congress a few years ago. That's taken millions out of the state's cleanup program. Also, there's this. The federal government pays for abandoned mine cleanup by assessing a fee on current coal production. And as current production takes a nosedive, there's simply less money coming in to pay for cleanup. Andy McAllister is with the Western Pennsylvania Coalition for Abandoned Mine Reclamation. We need every scrap of money we can get in this state to fix this problem. McAllister works to get more federal dollars to pay for mine cleanups but the economics of the coal industry are working against him. Sitting at his desk, he pulls out a sheet of paper with production figures from the last available year, 2013. Look at the, look at the uh, coal. For the first time in two decades, as of 2013, U.S. coal production fell below 1 billion short tons. It's now, as in 2013, 984 million short tons. Pennsylvania officials estimate the slowdown in coal will lead to about a 6% decline in mine cleanup money this year. The shortfall in funding will slow efforts to clean up what is essentially a slow-motion environmental catastrophe in the region. Abandoned strip mines, refuse piles, and mine drainage have poisoned thousands of miles of streams in coal country. Paul Zimkevich is a water scientist at West Virginia University. A lot of these refuse piles are in fairly remote areas, up in headwater locations, and because the acid is, is so concentrated coming out of these refuse piles, 
even though the volume is not gigantic, uh, they can wipe out many miles of headwater streams that would otherwise be very valuable. Mining exposes rocks like iron pyrite and shale to oxygen. When water flows over these rocks, it creates an acidic stew that leaches metals into waterways and lowers the pH of streams to the same level as vinegar. Fish just can't live in an environment with a pH of, say, 3. It just pickles them. (laughs) They just don't live. Pennsylvania alone has 5,000 miles of streams that have been impaired by mine runoff from places like the Fredericktown Waste Pile. Back on top of the pile, Cavazza shows me one of the culprits, a dark rock with a light frosting on its surface. You see this lighter colored material that you can see on top. These are uh, sulfate salts. They're from the oxidation of pyrite. This is when it rains. This is like the instant coffee of mine drainage. By simply grading the pile, capping it with soil, and seeding it with grass, the state could dramatically improve the water quality coming off of it. Cavazza's group did just that with a nearby pile last year. One reason why this site is so pressing for Cavazza is that it isn't just in some remote place. This dump is in the middle of a town, Fredericktown. Just ask Julie Bundy. She lives literally across the street. The slate dumps. Yeah, when we talk about where we live, we live across from the slate dumps. Everybody knows where that is. Um, I think it's just something that people have accepted as being part of the community. Standing on her porch, Bundy says the pile isn't so bad during the summer. The leaves on the trees make it so you almost can't see the pile. Uh, The only time I really notice it too much is when um, the teenagers come down and they want to go up on the slate dumps, either on their quads or dirt bikes. When she was a girl, her parents wouldn't let her near the dump. She's got little kids now of her own and doesn't like the fact that people she calls shady characters park their cars near her house and go up onto the pile. I know that my neighbor told me at one time it was a farm and uh, there, it was, there was apple orchards and everything on that property and it was very beautiful at one time and then this happened. Bundy thinks it would be beautiful if someday the big pile across the street simply goes away. I'm Reed Frazier. Read reports for the Allegheny Front. Coming up, a novel way to use the Clean Air Act to control greenhouse gases. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Something old could become something new in the regulation of global warming gases in America, and it's a potential game-changer. A provision of the Clean Air Act on the books since 1977 authorizes the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases across the economy when they cross international borders, as long as other countries are taking action to curb emissions. This provision, known as Section 115, was reportedly discussed by the State Department and international negotiators as part of the president's statutory authority to regulate CO2 and meet the pledges made in Paris. It's only been cited once before during the Carter administration's efforts to deal with acid rain, though the rulemaking halted when President Reagan assumed office. 
Michael Berger is the executive director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University and recently wrote about Section 115. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks, Steve. First of all, tell me what is Section 115 of the Clean Air Act and why would this be useful to achieve the emissions curbs that the U.S. has agreed to in Paris? Section 115 of the Clean Air Act is titled International Air Pollution, and it was included in the Clean Air Act as far back as 1965. And the provision is there in order to allow the executive branch to cooperate with foreign countries to solve international air pollution problems. Now, to invoke Section 115, there are a couple of prerequisite requirements. What would those be? Well, the... EPA has to find that sources of pollution in the United States are causing air pollution that is endangering the public health and welfare of people in other countries. Mm -hmm. So that's the endangerment finding requirement. There's another requirement, which we refer to as the reciprocity determination, which is that basically the administrator also has to find that other countries or another country provides the U.S. with basically the same rights to air pollution reduction as the U.S. is providing to that country or those countries. So that first requirement sounds pretty easy. I mean, CO2 emitted anywhere affects every place on the planet. The second one, to what extent does the Paris Agreement meet this reciprocity requirement? Even before the Paris Agreement, that requirement was already met. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, a number of bilateral and multilateral agreements and understandings that the U.S. has entered into with other countries, including the China Agreement or the mutual pledge made by the U.S. and China last spring, should satisfy those reciprocity requirements. But the Paris Agreement goes even further and makes the case absolutely sound, rock solid. Basically, in order to find reciprocity, there really are two different elements to it. There's a procedural element and a substantive element. The Paris Agreement provides for what they call an enhanced transparency mechanism through which countries are going to submit their nationally determined contributions, their plans and their pledges for reducing emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and other countries will be allowed to comment extensively on those pledges and plans. In addition, there's the fact of the plans themselves, which represent national pledges to address the international air pollution problem of climate change through greenhouse gas emissions reductions. So there you have both the procedural reciprocity and the substantive reciprocity. Tell me if I have this summarization correct. EPA has already found that CO2 is a, is a pollutant, it's a dangerous pollutant. It goes across not only state lines but international lines. And the Paris Agreement allows one nation to look at another's plan to deal with CO2. Now, one might read this Section 115 of the Clean Air Act as authorizing the EPA to get together with the states to put together market-based mechanisms such as cap and trade to respond under the Act. How accurate is that? Well, I think that that's absolutely correct. Section 115 provides the EPA with broad authority to address air pollution originating in the United States that's causing adverse impacts on public health and welfare in other countries. And there's no specific mechanism that it directs the EPA to use. It does refer EPA to Section 110, and the language in Section 110 gives states broad authority to use any mix 
of measures that they deem appropriate, including market-based mechanisms. So our view is that Section 115 authorizes EPA to, in effect, invoke a nationwide, economy-wide, cross-sectoral, market-based mechanism to deal with climate change. And when you talk about nationwide market-based mechanisms, a cap-and-trade system seems like a great answer. Yeah, I imagine the EPA is not allowed to impose a carbon tax, which would be another mechanism. Right. Although states working under a Section 115 program through their state implementation plans may be able to use state-based taxes to satisfy their state-based goals. So the way that we anticipate this would work, EPA would have to establish a nationwide cap for greenhouse gas emissions under Section 115. It would seem eminently reasonable for EPA to use the INDC submitted to the Paris Conference as that national cap. What the EPA would then do is allocate budgets to each state, basically give each state a target to meet in relationship to that national target. Once a state has its target, then each state would go through a SIP revision process, a state implementation plan revision process, in order to develop a mix of measures and regulations and incentives that would achieve that state-based target. Now, what are the advantages of using an existing piece of legislation, the Clean Air Act, and it's Section 115 that calls for a mutual reduction of pollutants if they cross international boundaries, rather than writing new legislation? Well, the fact is, is that new legislation is not in the offing. You know, we're not looking at a situation where Congress is going to revisit the failed legislation of 2009-2010. It just does not seem likely that that's going to happen in the future. Despite that, climate change is a very, very real problem. And we have an international pledge and no clear pathway to achieve that international pledge on the books as of yet. One of the real advantages of Section 115 is that it would provide the United States with a efficient and effective pathway to achieving the Paris Agreement pledge. The Clean Power Plan doesn't quite get us there. So we're going to need additional measures just to meet the Paris Pledge. The Paris Pledge itself is insufficient to keep us within a two degree Celsius global warming target, never mind a 1.5 degree Celsius global warming target. So in the future, after 2025, we're going to need a means to enhance our mitigation ambition. And Section 115 would provide a platform for that as well. So two of the advantages of Section 115 would be that it gives us a pathway to achieve the Paris Agreement, and then second, that it provides us with a pathway to enhance mitigation ambition in the future. Michael Berger lectures at Columbia Law School and is executive director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Mike. Thank you, Steve. By the way, observers close to the White House say there is not enough time left for the Obama administration to complete an economy-wide carbon emissions reduction program such as cap-and-trade under Section 115. That will depend on the next administration. Let's delve beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra of the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's ehn.org. He's on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. How's it going, Peter? 
Hi, Steve. You know, the Detroit Auto Show happens every January, and it's kind of a place for big dreams. But this year, it was a really big dream that got deflated. Oh, what was that? Back in the 2008 presidential campaign, candidate Barack Obama set a goal of a million electric vehicles on U.S. roads by 2015. They sort of walked that goal back in 2013, and then this year it went completely flat. Did you buy one? No, I didn't buy one, and uh, less than half the people to meet that million car goal bought them either. There are only 400,000 in the road as of 2015. Well, you didn't buy one, I didn't buy one. What went wrong? Well, several things. Battery technology in uh, electric vehicles is not as far along as some people hoped. The cost for those batteries and for the cars are too high. And, of course, we've got those low, low gas prices. When Obama made that promise as a candidate back in 2008, gas prices were 4 bucks a gallon. Now they're less than half that. Yeah, you're right. I can get it for buck fifty-nine in my neighborhood. Hey, what else do you have for us today? Well, let's call this next one CSI Environment. There are some fun developments in tracking pollution and environmental crime from satellites. Ah, uh, the big tree hugger is watching you. Well, not so much a big tree hugger. It's a little nonprofit called Sky Truth. They're leading the way and teaming with some big outfits like Google and others with satellite data and images to track fracking sites, oil spills, illegal logging, illegal mining, water theft, and particularly illegal fishing in our oceans. So what are the big callers these eco-cops have made? They've had a few. The SkyTruth folks set out scouring publicly available images for oil spills and other accidents. Back in 2009, they found a huge spill off Australia. Then they helped reveal the next year how big the Deepwater Horizon oil spill was in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh-huh, that's a pretty good pinch. Well, last year, they helped the government of Palau apprehend several fishing boats operating in protected waters. And that's a pretty big ocean out there. Yeah, until recently, Palau had only one boat to patrol an ocean area the size of Texas. You can imagine Texas only having one police car. That eye in the sky is welcome help for a place like Palau. Remember, we're talking about a small, tiny nonprofit and the tiny island nation leading the way on this. If larger countries, and maybe even the ones that are doing the illegal logging or fishing, get involved, it's a potential game changer. So what do you have for us today from history? It's one of those obscure international treaties turning 45 years old this week, the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands. It's named that because it was adopted in Ramsar, Iran in 1971. It helps nations identify and protect their vital wetlands. There are over 2,000 wetlands listed in Ramsar for their ecological and commercial value in 169 nations that have signed on. So uh, what kind of teeth does this deal have? Well, there's almost no such thing as an ironclad international environmental agreement, but Ramsar gives some leverage in protecting places in the U.S. like the Chesapeake Bay and Delaware Bay or floodplains and freshwater wetlands in the upper Mississippi. Internationally, you've got places like Vietnam's Mekong Delta or the Okavango in southern Africa. The threats to wetlands are still huge, but even wetlands need street cred, and the Ramsar Convention helps, so happy 45th birthday. All right. Now, Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you next time. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at loe.org. It's still early in the winter season, and though it was a monster... We've had only one major snowstorm so far in the Northeast. But that doesn't stop some of us from dreaming about waking up somewhere warmer and more enticing, such as the landscape Mary McCann evokes in today's bird note. 
On a winter morning in Costa Rica, a pair of bay wrens sings a brisk duet just before sunrise. Though the bay wrens stay well hidden in the underbrush, they have all the decibels they need to make themselves known. A breeze wafts in off the Caribbean Sea, less than a mile away, across the tropical lowland forest, fluttering the leaves of a tall giant fig tree hung with flowering bromeliads. Perched in the upper canopy, a small group of keel-billed toucans calls out. Their comically large bills are painted in lime green, turquoise, orange, and magenta. In a nearby tree, purple-throated fruit crows add their voices to the sunrise chorus. The male fruit crows are jet black with reddish-purple throats. Alongside the fruit crows, a huge oriole-like bird pivots upside down and belts out an electrifying series of notes. It's a male Montezuma oropendula with one of the most distinctive voices in the tropics. Finally, a bright-rumped Attila calls from its perch hidden deep in the canopy. The Attila will repeat its maniacal phrases until well after sunrise, reminding us again and again that it's morning in Costa Rica. I'm Mary McCann. You'll find pictures of these exotically named and feathered songsters at our website, LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, a novel material offers a new way to store and release energy from sunlight. We use these molecules that can absorb UV light, and instead of generating charges, what they do is they change shape, and by changing shape, they can store chemical energy this way. And this could come to your clothing soon. That's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Ed Lei Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, Amber Rodriguez, Jamie Kaiser, and Jennifer Marquis. And we welcome a new faculty fellow this week, Peter Boucher. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Also from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI. Public Radio International.